you start to restructure, restructure learning objectives around sustainability and particularly around sustainable development goals and that those eventually become the new curriculum. Actually, if you ask me what I intend to do over the next remaining years of my career, such as it is, I'm gonna focus on this. How do we actually connect with each other? We're not just transferring responsibility from one quadrant, the teacher, to the other quadrant, the student. We are going for a third way in which we have a shared vision and responsibility, working together and growing together. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and our guest today is Tom Markham. I'm not sure how much of an introduction Tom needs. He is known as the godfather of project-based learning, but his interests span everywhere from psychology to neuroscience to collective consciousness to social growth mindset to all these fantastically interesting, innovative, and really bleeding-edge areas of the way humans interact with themselves and with others. Sometimes you have conversations that make you upbeat, optimistic, excited about life, and sometimes you have conversations that get you so energized and pumped that you just can't wait to take on the world. And this is the conversation that I just had with Tom. Change and innovation requires courage, requires bravery. I get all that, but sometimes it's even more than that. Sometimes we realize that we are the brink of something big, something that could be as big as the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, Sometimes we are at the brink of something so enormous in the history of humankind, of life on this earth, that it is exciting, thralling, and, and we just get energy and, and see endless possibilities. And this is really the nature of the conversation that I had with Tom about how we think of taking purpose, collective purpose, and channeling it with our students, with our teachers, with our community, with our world, bringing everyone together to repurpose for the collective. Some of you may have read uh, the article that I wrote on promoting the welfare of the biocollective and that how that has to be the new value system that we have, and I'll have a podcast on it upcoming. Uh, again, I'm very excited about this and very thankful for Tom for having been our guest. So I leave way to my conversation with Tom Markham. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I'm really um, interested in some of the, what you have to say about uh, about social learning, about social consciousness, and clearly your expertise in in PBL. Um, you are very much known as uh, as one of the the founders, one of the the gurus, the godfathers of PBL. But there's a lot more that you've been doing uh, over the past few years, from 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 what I understand, and, and I'm keen to explore that. First thing I'll do is ask you the question: Who are you? What do you do and uh, how do you try to make a difference? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Benjamin. I appreciate being here. And I also appreciate the fact that you gave me a heads up on that question because I've thought about it and, and gave it some consideration as to how I would answer it. And the consideration I gave to you is instead of saying that I'm a PBL educator, which I am, I don't really think that's the true driver of what I do. So I'm going to be relatively transparent with you. Uh, I have felt really my entire life, even before I came into education, I'm actually not a career educator. I started somewhat midlife, but all my life I have felt that uh, it's important to help humans develop in whatever way you think that happens. So I have a strong sort of almost uh, spiritual metaphysical view of how people evolve and what we're trying to move towards in terms of 
our collective uh, humanity, if you will. So that has really informed uh, what I do. And I think it's sort of backed up by an interesting thought that how you view education really in large part depends on how you view human beings. It really, if you start to drill down into it, it's what do you think people are made of? What do you think they're doing? Where are you going? And that has become uh, much more pronounced over the course of my work over the last 20 or 25 years, particularly as we move into the present now, because as we begin to focus much more on what I call the internal aspects of human beings, curiosity, empathy, resilience, all those kinds of inner strengths that we are now saying are essential for handling 21st century life. Well, we are inevitably confronted with what do you think people actually are? So that's a big question. I'm not gonna to try to answer it in this podcast, but I'm just saying that's on my mind. And that has informed my work as a PBL educator because as I've often said to other people, I was quite fortunate to discover project-based learning 20 or so years ago because it allowed me to get in the door of schools and talk about project-based learning as a human development method, which is what I do. I think it's a strengths-focused method in which you really offer students challenge, choice, problem-solving. Uh, you offer them the opportunity to work together and you offer them the opportunity to create things or do things or solve things in a way that, that gives them a sense of mastery and confidence, which really parallels how we hopefully live our lives in general. So it's a human development method. So that's what I do. And that's what informs my work and has informed my work for a long time. Uh, and more recently, I would say as education is now under a rapid set of sort of rapid evolvement, if you will, again, towards a more strengths focused version of young people, uh, really thinking a lot more about how uh, teachers can open up to young people, offer them care and respect, develop positive relationships, because as far as I can tell, that's the key to learning to have a positive relationship between a younger person who we call a student and an older person that we call a teacher. But that's really what drives relationships, which I think actually has become even more apparent in this time of COVID when we've been doing a lot of remote instruction because teachers who have strong relationships with students or who had strong caring relationships, good bonds, are doing fairly well in a remote environment, while those who did not have those kinds of connections and bonds are not doing so well in a remote environment. Students are disappearing, not showing up, not turning in work, et cetera. So relationship now comes to the fore and becomes so important. So that's something that in my work, I hope to make a difference by helping teachers really take on the positive aspects of those relationship, create cultures of care, uh, form what I call a sort of a transparent communication with students back and forth. So it's a, it's a much clearer bond than we might've had in the old, older version of industrialized education where it's really just convey information. I've never forgotten, I actually talked to a man who graduated in 1960 from a very, very good school of education. 
And in the commencement address by the dean of the school, the dean of the school said, never get to know your students. So we've come some distance from them. And now we need to know our students really well. And that's what I try to build in to project-based learning. And there's a couple of things that you have said that I want to pick up on, a couple of things that you didn't say that I want to pick up on as well. Uh, but the next question that I ask every single guest, every single co-host is, uh, how do you define learning? Well, I define learning as a self-development process. Uh, I've done a lot of work and a lot of thinking about intelligence. So I don't mean expanding intelligence in the sense of increasing your IQ. I really mean in terms of increasing your openness to the world, your curiosity, your sort of willingness and ability to drop judgment or beliefs and open up to whatever is in front of you, whatever that might be. It might be a quadratic formula, or it might be saving the world. I don't really care, or it might be another person. But the idea of being open, I think, think is really key in terms of moving forward in education with young people, with all of us really. So self-development, learning for me is self-development and expanding yourself and expanding your openness and expanding your sense of the world, which leads to greater curiosity. It's sort of a spiral that occurs. So once you open up, then you open up more, then you become more curious, and then pretty much it's got traction and you're really moving on that process. And then more and more, I think it, that also leads to connection and contribution with community. And we see that one of the strong trends in learning is contributing to your community or connecting to your community and uh, moving into almost a community-based form of learning. So it's learning for self-development and learning for contribution and learning for positive change. I don't think you can define learning without attaching to it. What is the purpose of it? It's not just learning for learning's sake, it's learning for doing. And these are things that really resonate with me, particularly about the purpose. Um, I, I have been thinking about what is the point of knowing how to read if you don't take those ideas and do something with them. I'm, it's just, it just stays trapped in your mind. I might be the greatest mathematician in the world, but if I don't do anything with it, then then I might as well not know how to, how to add two and two. One of the things that struck me about what you said is you didn't use the word data once and also you are presenting it as a forward thinking, as you mentioned, a forward thinking process about the future. Yet so much of what schools are, are about the data, which is really taking that snapshot right now about what happened in the past. You could say you're gonna implement the data to, to, to further more learning, but really it's about calibrating what the next lesson is going to be. How, how does that tension, how do you see that tension evolving in this, in this world where relationships are going to be more important? I, I know that's a lot of things I'm throwing at you, but it's, it's, it's a very complex system and, and it's very hard to make it granular since they all are very interwoven. It is a complex, deep subject, but I'll get, just give you a couple of my takes on it. First of all, we live in a world that in a way has reached its zenith in terms of the scientific method, which translates into how do we accumulate data and facts around particular processes. And I actually think we're gonna run out of ways to do that because when you start moving into curiosity, resilience, empathy, 
whatever those inner strengths are, attitudes, behaviors, dispositions, however you characterize them, we are not going to get good data on them. It's not going to happen. It's simple, data is an external measure of external learning. It is not an internal measure of growth. So we are, I think, the short answer, the difficult answer is that we are probably involved in a long effort to reinterpret the meaning of data. And data is now going to be less objective and more relative to what the internal compass is rather than what the external evaluator says. Now that's, I think, actually goes to the core of what is a dispute in terms of educational transformation right now, because there are those who say, well, we have to hang on to data because if we don't have any data, we have nothing. We don't know what is happening. As opposed to those say, you know what? Human beings are pretty mysterious and they aren't so well suited to gathering data on and we're gonna move forward anyway. I think that is actually one of the fundamental tensions that we're dealing with as we move forward in learning for one thing, but in a broader societal sense as well. And this, and this is something that's going to require a lot of people to not just challenge what they're doing, but even get at the core of what they value and something that they've been holding on to. Um, and, and the idea of, of having relationships be at the core is also something that might be um, quite challenging and difficult. How do you see kids coming back, you know, given the fact that they've been isolated from each other, maybe from their families, maybe from their teachers, how are the opportunities going to be there given the fact that right now it's in such a difficult situation? Um, rather than, you know, be gloomy about it, what are the opportunities when we come back, whenever that is? Well, I'm gonna take a guess here. It's too early to have any research or data on this. But I would guess in the last 10 months, the psyche of young people globally has shifted a bit. I can't imagine that there aren't a number of young people who have lost a bit of faith in adults to manage the world successfully. I can't imagine there aren't a fair number of young people who say, you know, I've discovered that I actually can get all the learning I need to get done in three days and have two days to do what I want to do. And I don't need to spend six and a half hours every day in a seat. And it's not necessary for me to learn what I need to learn. And of course, interestingly enough, probably parents have observed the same thing. That's sort of on the positive side or what I would consider one side of the coin. On the other side, you're going to find, of course, many young people who just want to see friends and regain their social life and regain their social structure. And, and they've been lonely or isolated. So just going back to school in any format is probably going to feel good. But you always have to look at, so what's the true north that's forming up? And I consider the true north that's forming up as a result of 10 months of isolation and COVID and remote learning is that young people are going to be more attuned to their own sense of purpose and their own sense of what they need to do in life. And therefore, a little more resistant to the, strict, the, the structure of school and a little more immune to the messages, you must do this to get certified to do it the right way. So I think we're gonna find out over the next year through 2021, we're gonna see whether this plays out or not and how it does. But I think there's gonna be a shift 
it may be subtle at first, it may not be really apparent, but I can't imagine that this hasn't been sort of a sea change transformational moment in which suddenly young people realize I'm able to learn without having school to tell me exactly what to learn and when to learn it. And, and this is an opportunity. The dangers are, of course, that it becomes the Wild West. And by Wild West, I mean, kids are doing whatever they want and, and, and it's unstructured. And that's fine in itself. I don't have a problem with this, but it goes back to this idea of purpose and whether or not purpose should be a common purpose, should it be an individual purpose. How can we think about purpose in a way that also benefits the community that you're talking about? Um, I, I, and and, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean is, is if we think about genius hour, I have a big problem with genius hour if it's, if it's poorly constructed. Let's just let kids do what they want for an hour. We'll give them agency. They can choose. It's so exciting. But they've been for 36 hours out of the week doing what the teacher has been telling them. All of a sudden, they're, they're, they're being let go, even though they probably do what they want when they go home anyway. And then people say, yeah, but genius hour doesn't work. They don't, they don't know how to, how to dust self-discipline. Let's pull back the reins. But how can we think about purpose, getting kids to uh, explore, be curious, which is a time of discovery, while at the same time, uh, allowing them metacognitively, I don't know, to, to have a sense of purpose or to understand why they're doing something, when that needs to happen, and then taking the next step to a collective purpose? I think the first thing is that we're going to have to own up to the fact that standards, as we currently interpret them, are not going to provide enough structure for that effort and provide enough because standards don't contain enough energetic purpose in them. They just don't. So I foresee, again, I'm sort of an optimist about this, but what I foresee is that you start to restructure, restructure learning objectives around sustainability and particularly around sustainable development goals and that those eventually become the new curriculum. And you can say, well, that's kind of uh, optimistic or idealistic, but COVID could be followed by a second COVID, could be followed by climate change. We are faced, I think, with accelerating chaos. There's just too much going on in the world that is unbalanced. And that's it's inevitable that that lack of balance is going to lead to instability. Instability is going to lead to questions of, can we thrive and survive? Or how do we thrive or survive? How do we organize for purpose and what do we use? And I think the sustainable development goals are actually quite a nice structure to use. And they're there. I would like to see all project-based learning organized around one of the sustainable development goals. So I think that is one way to restore purpose. At the same time, I have a feeling the Wild West is inevitable to some extent. We're going to go through a Wild West period where we try to figure this out. And there's going to be a lot of, it is going to be a bit chaotic because we're now moving from letting go of really a, as you know, a highly structured system, highly structured to lack of structure or much less structure. And you're going to get inevitably a period of oh, I can do whatever I want. I mean, this comes up in project-based learning quite a bit, Benjamin, because there has been this, and still is to some extent, this misapprehension that project-based learning is Montessori and you just do what you want to do, when in fact it is a highly structured process, co-structured by the teacher and the student together, 
but there are expectations, there are parameters, there are guardrails that keep the process in place. So yeah, we're gonna to need to probably develop new guardrails, new ways to define that and not just say, okay, it's whatever you wanna do is fine. You know, that's probably not good. That doesn't do it either. And I don't, I'm not sure that's what young people would want. And that's where adults come in as wise mentors and sort of putting some surround on the whole process. So it does become purposeful without getting too crazy. And one of the things about sustainability that I see is uh, the problem, um, and, and I think going beyond and sophisticating this idea is that oftentimes when we think about sustainability, it's how are we going to save the plastic oceans? How are we going to save the trees? How are we going to fix the ozone layer? And, and, and really just making it about these uh, headline grabbing uh, environmental issues, which are very important. I love the ozone layer. We should have the ozone layer. I'm, I'm a pro ozone layer. But sustainability really is a mindset. It's a philosophy. It's it's a means to live a different kind of life. Um, it, it is in the way that we we value human relations, relations with animals. Um, that's quite a sophisticated piece of thinking, though, in terms of getting again the, the, everybody on board of this, rather than just ticking it off. Much like PBL is just about kids running free, doing what they want. Sustainability is always about saving the trees. Where is the conversation going to happen, do you think, to, to get things a little bit tighter, but more importantly, get things to take that extra step towards a, a potential change in values as a collective? Well, I will forecast something that probably many people would disagree with. What keeps us from that biocentric model, which I know from talking to you that you promote, which I agree with, what keeps us from the biocentric model is the notion that we are self-contained within our skin and that we have no connection other than what we can see around us. And I foresee, and I'm actually, if you ask me what I intend to do over the next remaining years of my career, such as it is, I'm gonna focus on this. How do we actually connect with each other? And are there processes that, by which we connect that we aren't visible to us, energetic processes, mind and consciousness. Um, we know the research is pretty clear that cultural shifts can change the brain. We know the brain is incredibly neuroplastic. So how does that happen and what is happening? And is it possible that there are some forces at work that actually connect us? Because I think we're going to have to move towards a broader view of human functioning and human capability if we're actually going to have a new generation of people who are going to understand inherently that they are connected to one another they're connected to that piece of earth underneath their feet and they're connected to the tree that's growing in that piece of earth and they're connected to the animal that's in the tree and so yeah it's going to be a bigger a big conversation and you asked earlier about data and so forth. This is where I believe that the, the scientific model is gonna break down on us because this neurocognitive model is not adequate for giving us enough leverage to understand how we truly operate. And so I think expanding or investigating or be open to a different view is what's gonna help us actually see that we can really connect. We might even create a global growth mindset. 
where we're connected together. So obviously that's a little bit out there and maybe, I don't know how far in the future, but I think it's going to come into the conversation and maybe more rapidly than we might think because events are moving very rapidly on us, very rapidly indeed. So we're, we're gonna be forced into, well, gee, what if we operate a little bit differently than we thought? <laughs> so that's what I'm hopeful about. And this idea that we're measuring kids' growth and reading comprehension or whatever it might be is so incredibly atomizing that that has to be broken through about how do we work together to solve these problems, which is what PBL is to a large extent as, the, as, as kids work in teams. Tell, 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 tell us more about, about the social um, growth mindset. How, how do you see that? How does that fall into what exists and, and maybe developing it in, in further ways? Well, right now we operate under the assumption that brains act in isolation. And yet in the field of neuro, social neuroscience, they're sort of disputing that fact and actually looking at brain changes in relationship to culture and connection. So it's not too much of a leap to think that, well, okay, if you're working in a team of five students that that team, particularly if it's driven by empathy and connection and a strong sense of shared purpose, that your brain isn't changing. I mean, we know your brain's changing by the millisecond. Why wouldn't it be changing in that environment of working in a team, particularly when the team is aligned and you feel that sense of harmony and unity and, and shared purpose? I, I, have ima I imagine that maybe it is. And you could ex extend that to thinking out of the 8 billion people, if you could have 3 billion people thinking that way across the planet, maybe you actually start to have a shared growth mindset. And as a matter of fact, I would argue we're already experiencing that to some extent. And I would argue that the events of the last 10 to 12 months have accelerated that process. And if we really just kind of like are honest and step back and look at it and we see, gee, I can't imagine how connected we are. You and I would not have had this conversation 12 months ago. And something has changed and this is going to have consequences for how we function, how we operate. And the first place that you sort of register those consequences is in uh, the neurodynamics of the brain. And now we're not really good at measuring the neurodynamics of the brain. We know it's still a black box, but we can sort of start to speculate and look at, well, maybe we are starting to sort of groove in one direction. And that's uh, and that is what's going to take us beyond again this this individualist this this humanist idea of of the individual individual rights which maybe had its time but as as even you know the UN is talking about the Anthropocene I mean people have been talking about it for only, you know a few years now but the the report came out uh, I guess uh, a few months ago from the from the uh, Human Development Report about how now we are in a new geological age where humans are changing the earth, no longer nature. How do schools prepare kids, schools that are in a system that is experiencing probably the greatest change in millennia, a geological shift, nothing less than that. How do schools even begin to preparing kids for what lies ahead? You know, the only way I see it, Benjamin, is through the path of personalization and young people themselves pushing. 
I don't see it in terms of, now the structure is responding. And we know that many teachers, many administrators, many school systems are really kind of doing the best they can to be more agile and more elastic and more responsive and more open. They're trying, but systems react slowly. I think the real driver is going to be kids themselves. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know whether it's going to look like more homeschooling, more fewer people going to universities, more personal pathways, more personalization. It, but I would say in general, it's going to look like a lot of kids around the world pushing back against the norms and structure and trying to find their way out of that box to do other things. Now, it remains to be seen what that's going to look like, how long it will take, and how chaotic that process might be. But I do believe that's what's going to happen. And I think probably the number one task of educators is to facilitate and smooth that process while still retaining this sense of structure and purpose that you were talking about, rather than saying, okay, I'm cutting you loose to do whatever you want to do. Let's repurpose ourselves and let's rethink ourselves together, which is why I always, I don't really refer to teachers in the old sense. I really consider them to be what I call co-learners because teachers, if they're 40 years old, don't know any more about what's coming than the 15 year old. They might have a better sense of some things which they can share. They are the adult, but they're also learning. And sometimes the insight into this. So it's gonna be a mutual learning relationship going forward as a teaching uh, teacher-student partnership. And this is why uh, I think you have talked about this too, why I, I agree with you in which it's not, we really need to redesign the term student-centered and think about being not just, we're not just transferring responsibility from one quadrant, the teacher, to the other quadrant, the student. We are going for a third way in which we have a shared vision and responsibility, working together and growing together. And that is something that that's, yeah, that absolutely. That's very important to me. I think student-centered, there's not many schools who are even at that point, but I think that it's time to just go forward uh, for, for the collective. And, and, and as, as I uh, see it, the bio collective is there everything that that's living uh, as, as we're interconnected. Um, that does bring me to another question about this, about the quantum brain um, that, that I know you're interested in and, and, and how does that fit in to the picture? What does that mean? Uh, how, how is that going to, to lubricate this process or maybe make it more challenging? So there are really, the, the, the dominant view of the brain is really the cognitive view, which says the brain is a collection of neurons and synapses and uh, things happen through this incredibly intricate network of neurons and somehow, we don't know, but somehow that intricate ne network uh, develops a thought or does something called learning or retains the quadratic equation methodology. Now we have no idea how that happens, but we're going on the assumption that it does. Now, the less dominant view, but nevertheless, something that many people who work with the brain would subscribe to is in fact, that whole collection of neurons and synapses sort of constitute a dynamic system. And that dynamic system may be capable of processing energy at a far faster rate and in a far different way than what we think of as just 
neuron transfer. You know, just the same way that uh, cell phone waves are captured by our devices. And uh, this is actually well-developed uh, theory. It's still theory. It is the notion that we are much more dynamic, capable. That view of the quantum, quantum brain also leads you to having perhaps a little more understanding of what mind and consciousness might be as, let's say, fields of energy. And that leads you to sort of think, well, fields of energy mingle and connect and co-mingle very easily. That's what they do. So if you take that quantum view of the brain, you begin to move into much more of sort of a field theory of how humans interact and that those fields are ways that information is transmitted. Again, that's not too foreign for us considering that every day we use that 50 times a day. We are communicating through fields. So it's not so far-fetched. We just haven't really seriously as in a dominant view begin to explore that. But there are many people who do think in terms of a quantum brain and in terms of being able to process energetic impulses, which are actually just uh, pieces of information, data, bits, just like a cell phone, it's bits. And maybe we have the ability to process that. So I think there's something to look at there and you try to, try to come back to something that you mentioned. We may have, we may have to figure that out if we're gonna actually connect well enough to do the job we need to do because the model we have now is too slow and too limited. It's hard to imagine a biocentric view based on our current notion of how the physiology of the brain works. We don't even know right now where the word cat is stored in the brain. Nobody could tell you. So, you know, we, we're, we're really babes in the woods when it comes to understanding the brain. And I'm sort of hopeful and I would like to help think about a conversation in which we re, actually rethink that whole concept. Listen, Tom, it's been a real pleasure uh, and, and I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to, to speak with us about, about so many of these, uh, of these uh, questions and issues that are, that are quite um, transformative in, in terms of our value systems, in terms of the way we do. I mean, we're, we're talking about doing nothing less than changing humanity in many ways the way the way we we focus the way we it is a, it is a revolution and i don't mean it in 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 a, in a throwaway term it is as important as the industrial revolution as the agricultural revolution and and moving so forth as as we reconfigure social and and, and interpersonal dynamics i i will I will ask you this question though, what, what is next I'm thinking? You, you mentioned that you wanted to take the next you know, years in terms of, of, re, of repurposing, of, of bringing folks to, to this idea of collective. What are you going to do in the, in the short term, in the longer term? What are some of the areas that you're going to investigate? Um, how are you going to plan out if you can see at least a beginnings of a plan of, of where this will take you? Well, um... My immediate next step is to put this in writing. So I'm at work at a book called uh, Radical Intelligence. And the subtitle, at least the working subtitle, is Setting Young People Free to Decide the Fate of the Planet. Because we need to connect them up. And we need, whether it's through this quantum brain model or whether it's just through really good uh, strengths-focused human development approach to education, it's probably all of the above. And we really need to, or the third piece, 
releasing them from some of the requirements of school. It's all those and basically turning their attention to survival and thrival and turning their attention and their, their time and ability to affect their communities in positive ways and to do meaningful, relevant work aimed at keeping life together. I, I, I'm an optimist, uh, Benjamin. I am not a pessimist in any way. But at the same time, I think we're in for a bit of a rough ride. And so we're going to need all the good thinking, all the best resources, and all the transform transformational notions that we can come up with to make it through. We are in, I, I think you put it very well. This is, we have the industrial revolution, ag revolution. Now we have the human development revolution. And that's what we're in the middle of. And COVID has accelerated that whole process and brought that right to our, in front of us. And that's where I think we're at. So anything I can do to contribute to the human development revolution, I'm on board. Well, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Benjamin. Great pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Tom Markham for being our guest. This is a time to be courageous. This is a time to be brave. There's a lot of talk out there about how schools are changing. There's a lot of talk out there about how we can't go back to the same. I think we need to be even more ambitious than that. I think we need to think about the values that we have as a society, as a species, as a member of planet Earth, as another living being among the ecosystem, among the other living beings on planet Earth. I think it is time to shift our values away from humanism, away from egocentricism, away from everything that has atomized us and led to the situation we are now. I wrote a blog recently saying that we might not know what the future has for us, but I do know that there are things that are going to endure. I call these the big three issues. They are climate disruption, socioeconomic inequality, and the relationships, the precariousness of the relationships we have with other living beings. And these need to be addressed, and this is where we need to take humanity and all our efforts, all the purpose. We need to fight for a world that is more than just sustainable, but thinks about the impact we have, the positive impact we have on the biocollective. That is, everyone that has an interest in the healthfulness of the planet, the healthfulness of the ecosystem and the way we exist symbiotically. This might sound a lot of uh, airy-fairy stuff, but I think that we are on the brink of a revolution. We are on the brink of having to make considerable decisions. Think about where we are, our values and our reflection. Um, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Please send us your comments. Uh, www.coconut-thinking.design is where we have our blog. This is where we have the podcast. Get in touch on LinkedIn. Send me an email, benjaminfreud at icloud.com. And uh, I hope there's going to be a surprise coming up where Charlotte is also going to participate in the podcast. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening and hopefully speak to you soon.